Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff, and today about something else. My guest is Ducky, who you know from before, and he's got a, quite a surprise topic today. So, Ducky, take it away. <laughs> That's a, my uh, curveball of a topic today, Nick. Um, I thought we should maybe have uh, a chat about watches, uh, because... I think it's something that overlaps quite a lot with the heritage and rugged clothing interest that we have, um, especially on Instagram. I think it's become a bigger and bigger part of uh, people posting, you know, accessories and sort of uh, everyday carry and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I thought it would be an interesting topic to sort of dive into. Certainly one I wouldn't have thought of on my own. I have to admit my relationship to watches has over the years been less than um, stellar. I do have one watch, which I know some people find quite interesting. It's uh, must be a 1970s Omega Constellation self-winding piece that my, my dear father gave me in a moment, weak moment. I must have been around 20 and I used it a lot over the years. So it's quite scratched now and um, probably worth a lot less than uh, once lying in collector's boxes around. Uh, it still runs though, still keeps time, and uh, it's had a good few um, straps on it. They keep rotting our way. But uh, apart from that, uh, about 12 years ago, I think I got this fascination with uh, US Special Forces watches and bought a marathon navigator, I think. Oh, nice, yeah. All, all black. I actually really like that, and it's sort of very purposeful. I remember reading at the time that it was a sort of watch that would um, it would get attention when people saw it and it would be a talking piece. Now, I don't think that ever happened, even once. But um, I, I, I like it myself and I have changed batteries a few times. I haven't used it much in recent years, though, because it must be about two years ago now, I got an Apple Watch and that sort of does everything. I can even ah, talk on the phone on it. And that's sort of pretty much my sad watch story. But I gather yours is uh, it's a lot better. But I think that's a great watch story. I think the fact that you have a, a family heirloom, uh, I, mean, I think that's that's the most important aspect of uh, this sort of stuff is, you know, if you can own something and, you know, it's still worthwhile to pass on to the next generation, that, that's a great thing to have. Um, I think I've wrote uh, on your blog as well, I have uh, my grandfather's watch and that's probably where it started for me. It's this old uh, Soviet watch, um, and it's not as rugged as the ones that you've just mentioned. It's a sort of a dress watch, so it's quite thin, a uh, gold watch. And so I'm quite careful about when I wear it. And uh, truth be told, the Soviet sort of uh, manufacturing at that point uh, wasn't fantastic quality, so it doesn't make it the most you know, um, practical uh, item <laughs> uh, okay. to, to wear. Part of it is, you know, the you must have that on your watch as well. It's mechanical, so you know you have to wind it. So um, you have to physically sort of turn uh, the crown on the side of the watch every day. And sort of a good Swiss watch, you know, you typically do that once a day and it, it runs fine. With, with this sort of uh, lesser refined Soviet movement, you have to do that every let's say 10 hours, otherwise it dies. So wow. it, may, it makes it tricky to keep uh, accurate time. But I, the, hope it's not a, I hope it's not a Raketa brand. 
No, it's not. It's, uh, but you know, probably to some extent it, uh, it's loose. I think it's a pronunciation for it. I think it means lightning in Russian. Mm. Um, but I'm pretty sure it must've been made in the same places. I mean, I think Raketa now, cause I, I've heard the podcast that you had, uh, with the current owner, Raketa now, uh, has like quite a different, uh, quality of manufacturing, uh, than, than, than it did back then. But they also, the other thing is, um, with this sort of stuff, I guess I, I, it, it probably just needs to be serviced as well because the mechanical parts, you know, it, 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 at some point they age and they need regular service. And mine is about, let's say, 50, 60 years old. And then I got it serviced about 10 years ago. So it's probably just needs, a, yeah, needs another sort of visit to the doctors, really. Hmm. But do you have uh, you, your, your mechanical watch? Do you, do you wind that? How do you find sort of the practicality of that? Because that's one thing that I think uh, is, well, is an issue for a lot of new time, you know, first-time buyers. Uh, I mean, the, the constellation is um, self-winding. Okay. So as long as I sort of shake my wrist, it sort of keeps going. Uh, I don't think I've ever had to wind it manually. Or I would have if, if it's been lying for a long time, like it has now. Yeah. So that's okay. So just to take a step back, I guess for people that don't know, most watches these days they run on batteries. That's probably fairly obvious. Uh, back in the day, though, you would typically have something called a manual wind watch, which is where sort of watches started, including your pocket watches. They were watches that you had to physically sort of turn the crown on it, and then later, um, in the, I think it was sort of the twenties or so. Uh, you got something called an automatic uh, wind, which is basically there was a little plate on the back of your watch. And just by you moving your wrist, that plate spins and that does the same job as physically turning uh, the wind on the manual watch. So that was a massive leap forward in uh, in watches when it happened because, you know, it meant that it was this sort of, uh, you know, much simpler to keep your time. You didn't have to remember it every day. And so... It was a it, it was quite a technological break breakthrough, and eventually though, when the I think it was in the seventies when the the quartz watch came around again, that was another sort of leap forward. Uh, mm. And you'd think that everyone would sort of stick to these technological advancements as being the desirable things, you know. So automatic movement would be better than a manual movement, and then the automatic movement was surpassed by the quartz, but. Obviously, there's other aspects to watches that we value in terms of aesthetics and nostalgia and all this sort of stuff. So these days, still, these old watches are actually uh, the old way of manufacturing it mechanically. It's still the the thing that high-end brands and uh, also nerds and collectors uh, value more typically than the more technologically advanced battery-based movements. And of course, when Casio released their LCD watches, must have been late 70s, early 80s, that completely changed the game again. I remember I had one with a little calculator on it. Oh, did you? buttons and all that. That must have been exciting. I could store telephone numbers. <laughs> yes, of course. That's super useful, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly, uh, not so popular now, except in a sort of retro, ironic way, I think. Yeah, and I mean, no one would ever use it for storing telephone numbers or doing math uh, sort of uh, calculations on, but I can totally see why it would be yeah, sort it of was, a real futuristic thing when it came out. It was really techno in those days. We were listening to Depeche Mode, playing with our calculator clocks, 
craft work, of course. I mean, it was the future. Totally. Did you ever cheat on an exam using it? Uh, not using that. I did have pocket calculators later on, which had much more storage and stuff, which were useful for <clears throat> keeping notes. Right. But the, but the watch, no, that would have been useless. I, <laughs> I think I could store 10 telephone numbers or something. Uh, I think my future as a forger and cheater would have been rather limited. Oh. <laughs> well, I I think... I sort of had a similar thing where, as a, especially as a kid, I thought that my granddad's watch was a bit, you know, old and boring. And what I really wanted was a really cool G-Shock, uh, especially because mm. I heard, like, you know, that's what, you know, all the sort of cool, you know, whether it was rappers or, you know, uh, sort of uh, military or, you know, all the sort of people that you might look look up to and think that they're rugged and cool, that that's what they had. Um but I'll be honest, the more and more I am, I am much more into the sort of thinner profiles and more sort of, yeah, refined design stuff um, and less of the rugged, uh, personally. Because watches today, or they do fit into certain categories. You mentioned your, your Soviet era dress watch and the G-Shock, which would be sort of super rugged, but in a sort of basic way, I suppose. And I have the the special forces watch, which is pretty rugged. Mm. But there are other categories too, aren't there? Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I well, if you if you so again, I guess the the main thing to remember is that watches used to be this utilitarian tool, right? So you just needed one, and so really it was about everyday watches were just what you. I mean, they would be called just you know regular watches, but typically what come under dress watches. So they're sort of um, these, yeah, sort of relatively small, uh, you know, refined little things that you just have on your wrist. Um, then you get into these categories, which are about like dive watches, which is probably the thing that you see the most of. So dive watches are the ones that have these little clicky things around the edges that you can turn. And that's to set the amount of time uh, that you want to be underwater so that you can keep an eye on that. And obviously the origin of that is sort of the military or uh, the Navy uh, divers. And so, for example, the Rolex Submariner, which is this, you know, the the stand, like the gold standard for uh, sort of watches, that, that, that's where that comes from. It's actually originally a dive watch. But then you have, you know, pilot watches. And then you have, you know, uh, sort of infantry watches. And so all of these things had, at some point, uh, a reason for being designed the way they are. But now they've become, you know, just a, a design standard or classic. And there's now, you know, ever more variations and imitations of that, those original designs. It strikes me that a lot of those type of watches you mentioned now are hugely expensive, hugely collectible, apparently impossible to actually buy from a dealer and are sort of uh, Instagram flexing tools. Yes, <laughs> which which probably isn't sort of in the spirit of the original utilitarian design. Yeah, uh, my my grandfather used it to stop him uh, running out of uh, oxygen whilst diving in the North Sea. I use it to gain likes on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Exactly, uh, and and that's the that's the funny thing about especially you know the really desirable stuff. Um, you know, the, the Submariner, the, the Submariners, for example, the Rolex Submariners, the original ones that now command the highest prices, uh, they were 
given to specific diving units. Um, and so COMEX was the name, but you can search on that. I mean, that, that's like tens of thousands of, of pounds for those. And, you know, they were pure utilitarian design. They were just for, you know, whatever this hundred people that were going to dive with them and go, you know, 300 meters into the, the water. And that's what they were designed for. Uh, but now, you know, you probably see it on the wrist of a banker <laughs> and, you know, it's uh, and or a rich kid on Instagram. So that, that that's where they've ended up, these uh, lovely uh, sort of rugged items of design. Yeah, probably spend most of their time in one of these automatic winding boxes, uh, apart from when it's taken out to be photographed or resold. Or shown off. Yeah, exactly, exactly. As, um, as, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's funny that that's, that's, that's the way things have developed, but, um, in, you know, this is something that typically happens, isn't it? So the other bit of this is that's is quite interesting is typically what you then see is the ones that have become quite uh, command quite a high value, it's actually because they were relatively um, rare originally. Uh, so they didn't produce too many of them. And obviously, if you don't produce too much of something, it's because it's not very popular. So that's the other sort of dirty secret or sort of funny story about all of this is a lot of those vintage and rare watches, they were not very collectible or desirable originally. So they didn't sell very many of them. And that's exactly what's constrained supply and then, you know, has pushed the prices up over time. So um, the Daytona or the Rolex Daytona would be something that might, people might be familiar with. You know, some of them command, you know, sort of hundreds of thousands of, of pounds uh, in price for, for those old vintage ones. And that's uh, something that's associated with Steve McQueen. Um, and so, you know, he had it on in a, in a movie or two and then a couple of photo shoots as his own watch. But it's actually his, his wife that bought that watch. And it was not a very desirable watch at all. But because it's associated with him and there's all this sort of cult following around him, it's then become something that a lot of people want and a lot of people with a lot of money want. And so the prices have just become astronomical for those. That's kind of ironic and, and strange, but also a really good story. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, the thing to take away from it is basically what you want to do now is buy all the crap that no one wants and sit on it for 50 years and then sell it for a lot of money. I think, I think that's the lesson. Wow, <laughs> that sounds like a really bad idea. But, uh, but yeah, you might be right. Investment yeah. advice. I mean, so there's a lot of those kind of stories, though. I don't know. If, have you come across a Panerai? I have. I'm aware of the brand name, and I have seen one that looks quite nice. But uh, I think I tend to sort of shy away from stuff that is so clearly impossible to buy. Hmm. Yeah. But what's the story with the Panerai? So the, the Panerai one is, again, quite an interesting one. Um, it was it was sort of the, what do I say? It was kind of like the, the watch that people would get um, instead of the Tudor, sorry, instead of the Rolex Submariner. So the Rolex Submariner was sort of too mainstream for people, and then they would usually go and buy a Panerai because it was this sort of like you were, you knew quality but you didn't want something that everyone would recognize so you would get this other thing um and so the story with panerai uh the, the origin at least is that it was for the italian um, divers for the italian navy i think it's in the four, uh, 30s and 40s that was originally designed 
And it was based on this pocket watch movement, which is why it's relatively big as well. And so, um, again, really cool story. You know, they had um, these watches were designed for them. And I think there was some overlap with um, Rolex produced the um, original movements or something uh, along those lines. Um, but so it has all this sort of like really sort of cool heritage story to it. And it has the brand now, though, has been bought up, uh, you know, very sort of uh, sensibly by a, a company that has nothing to do with the origin, but has everything to do with the marketing of it. And so they knew that they could leverage this story into being something that, uh, would connect with people. And so, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, it became this really hype brand, uh, for the sort of niche market of people that were into watches. And you saw a lot of it on Instagram. And one of the reasons I think it really connected with people that are into heritage and rugged wear is because it has these really thick watch straps. Uh, so you can have this really lovely leather um, on the, uh, as the watch strap, but also they're quite easy to change. So you could, you know, uh, unscrew it within seconds and put other straps on. So there was this sort of, you know, useful sort of aspect of the design. And, you know, with the patina and the leather and all that sort of stuff, it really connected with people that were into heritage and um, sort of rugged clothing. And it's a really, yeah, I mean, I, I really like the designs. Unfortunately, it's much too big for my puny wrist. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really lovely watch otherwise. But am I right in thinking that the price of them is in the higher range? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the one thing to think about with these kind of things is it's all really relative, <laughs> as well, you know, as with any other sort of consumable or sort of durable type uh, good like this. That's also luxury. Um, we're probably talking at least sort of at entry level at like two, three thousand pounds second hand uh, or grain market. If you want to buy new in retail setting, you're closer to four or five thousand. So I, t- I, t- I tend to think of jackets and also watches, I guess. If they're more than a decent second hand car, they're too expensive. <laughs> yeah, unless, unless your Panerai is going to drive you to your dentist appointment, you don't want it. Yeah, I guess. I suppose, I suppose a Panerai might be a better investment. Well, this and this is this is the thing that's really driven a lot of the, the consumption, I think, uh, for better or for worse, is, you know, um, assuming you take care of your watch and you don't do anything too insane uh, with it, you know, um, you would expect it to keep its value, especially if you bought it uh, sort of in the grey market from, you know, um, not... From, from a trusted sort of dealer or a, a private uh, person, typically, in most cases, you will hopefully break roughly even uh, if you, you know, at least over the last 10 years or so, if you invest in the right sort of watches. Uh, and by right, I mean the more sort of popular ones, which probably won't surprise anyone. And in some cases, you know, they've gone up massively in value. And so that's led to a lot of uh, people speculating on, on, on the prices of these things. Um, and so they've sort of become, yeah, these very strange uh, investment toys for rich people, kind of like you've seen with, you know, sneakers and, um, you know, Supreme and that sort of stuff. It's it's not really that different from that. Right. And you touched... So what, what, what would be the sort of best investment watches now? So, uh, I mean... The closest thing to um, a commodity is uh, a sports Rolex, 
Um, so if you have a steel sports Rolex um, and you bought that 10 years ago, uh, chances are you know it would have nearly have doubled in value. Um, so you know, is that going to be the future? Well, that's anyone's guess. But if you were to sort of think about what's happened in the past and that being the best predictor of the future, then you know, a gold, um, sorry, a steel uh, submariner or a steel um, explorer, uh, GM, GMT, Rolex GMT, uh, which is the, their pilot's watch. I mean, those are watches that genuinely have not lost value in the last 10 years if anything they've they've about doubled which is kind of shocking mm. so a good investment tip then would be to time it right and buy it 10 years ago so if you can get your calculator watch on <laughs> then go uh play michael j fox for a while and <laughs> go back in time buy a bunch mm. of rolexes for about 100 pounds in the 1980s you can sell them for about 10 grand now so that that is i think our next steps nick Brilliant. I mean, don't, no, nobody could say we don't give good value here. Top tips. Exactly. And we don't even charge for it. So you're welcome. There you go. So moving on uh, from diving watches, which mm. are, as you said, the ones you notice the most because they tend to be about, what, kilo of bling sitting on the wrist, mm. to what next? So I'd say – so. Another uh, sort of classic uh, set of watches that you see are pilot watches. Um, so, again, you got to sort of take this with a pinch of salt. When I say pilot watches, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure that many pilots are wearing these watches. They probably have a G-Shock or something. But the, the origin of the design comes from uh, the military, again, uh, and, and pilots of, of the past. And so there was a, a few sort of classic ones there. One of them is uh, what you call a B er, um, which is sort of German, uh, which I've probably butchered, uh, which is the sort of German pilot watches from the 1940s, and they were sort of classic designs. Now, they had a bunch of really interesting aspects to them. One of the things was obviously uh, back in the day, if you sat in the cockpit, you would be freezing, and so you'd wear your massive aviator jacket, which some uh, of our fellow rugged friends wear as well. Now the issue with that is obviously if your wrist is really, uh, you know, covered in thick um, shirling, then it's kind of difficult to pull your massive jacket back to just check your uh, your time. Um, and so what they did instead is they had this massive pocket watch sized watch on top of the jacket. So the sort of original designs that you still can actually get, which is quite cool, is these plate-like watches that have a huge strap uh, that could go around a massive Sherling jacket. Uh, because if you didn't wear the Sherling jacket, obviously you'd freeze to death, but you still needed to know what the time was because otherwise you wouldn't get to your destination or have a sense of which direction you're flying. So that was the original solution. That's a very literal solution. I was trying to think, you know, what, what sort of solution could you have? Because you have jackets that have a little sort of watch, uh, a, a little window in the arm, but uh, just strapping it on the outside is actually not elegant, but a very literal solution. Indeed. And, then, you know, that's, again, like a pragmatic solution that, you know, you're not going to spend loads of uh, time and money figuring 
you know, R&D out. You're just going to strap it on and you just get up there. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's quite a cool um, design. So the, the watches, if people are ever interested in looking at that, there are some German brands that are still around that produce based on that. And uh, one of them is called LACO, L-A-C-O, and the other one's called Stoa. Um, and they still produce those original designs. I mean, they've refined them as well and made smaller versions of them. And, um, yeah, there's some really lovely versions out there of it. Uh, but, yeah, they're quite striking, easy to read. Um, so, you know, um, have all the sort of utilitarian, uh, pragmatic solutions that you would want from from a watch for, for that sort of purpose. Hmm. Sort of looking, idly looking around occasionally at watches, say on eBay, it does strike me that if if looking at sort of cheaper vintage watches, there's a, a huge selection of watches that actually look pretty cool. Mm. Uh, as long as you steer clear of anything that has anything to do with the war, because then the price tends to go dramatically up. Yeah. Yeah. So there is um, there is a lot of interest in that, and I guess it's. You know, if I give you my antiques roadshow explanation for that, it's because you sort of have an overlap of collectors. Uh, you have the sort of military people that are interested in it, as well as the vintage watch people. And so that's why you get that effect, that it just becomes a little bit more expensive and because it's a little bit more desirable and the market is bigger for them. Um, so there's a bunch of, especially British, uh, well, I mean, there, every like a lot of countries have quite classic military design watches. Um, so the pilot watches that I mentioned, they are effectively a military and so are the dive watches, but you know, you have infantry watches as well. Um, a really cool one, which you might appreciate was, um, something called the WWW watches, which is, uh, wrist waterproof wrist watch, uh, watches. And I think I've sent you a picture of that in the past. Um, this is, uh, so those watches were quite an interesting, uh, British, um, British sort of solution. Um, they were basically commissioned by the MOD, and they asked twelve uh, or they commissioned twelve uh, watchmakers, so different brands, to produce these watches. And so they're with these uh, the standard of watch, this WWW watch, um, as was set out by the MOD. Basically, twelve different companies produced this in slightly different variations. And so these are these variations are called the Dirty Dozen, which is. <laughs> The sort of collector's name for them and so the idea is that you can have these um collect the different all, all 12 of them if you're really um well if you're re- relatively rich now but if you were very really clever some years ago you could have collected these 12 and they're now it's worth a lot of money but uh so yeah you can see these different versions of the same watch effectively that met the standard uh, set out by the mod and so it was for uh, the British uh, engineers, I think, uh, it was commissioned during the Second World War. But I think by the time that they actually delivered, these 12 companies delivered these, uh, there was no sort of need for them in uh, in for the purposes of the war. But um, they're still massively collectible now. And they've um, yeah, gone up in value quite a lot uh, recently because I think people that are outside of the military and the nerdy watch uh, collector's world have also sort of um, started to sort of recognize the design of these being quite as being quite desirable. Right. It weren't actually that easy to Google. I did a quick Google here and I had to add dirty dozen MOD WWW watch to actually bring them up. But yeah, 
That is actually a, a nice design. It looks technical, but clean. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I'd say um, nearly all the watches that you see in the market today, um, especially you know the Michael courses and the, all these other, uh, but even high end watches, they to some extent make references to these old watches. So it's you know very similar to you know just like when we go out and buy a jacket, it's not like many companies are reinventing the jacket. They might make slight, you know. Um, upgrades or slight twists to original designs but you know between dive watches and these classic pilots watches and uh, military watches uh, like the infantry ones you know there's a lot of references to these and so i'd say if anyone really likes a particular design um, instead of maybe spending a couple hundred on the you know, michael kors watch you can potentially spend a little bit more and get something far more interesting that would hopefully keep its value as well uh, and Again, it's something that you can pass on if you take care of it to, you know, your the next generation or a good friend or whatever you decide to do with it. Indeed, indeed. Um, um, so you've got military watches. How about watches for, I mean, you see watches made for polar expeditions, moon expeditions, mountains. Yes. Do they have special variants? They do. So that's a, that's a really interesting one, actually. Um, so one of the sort of biggest sort of, um, well, it's, 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 uh, I say marketing stories, but it's like, it's, it's, it's to some extent a genuine story is about the, um, Explorer. So Rolex Explorer watch. So this was a watch that was designed for Edmund Hillary. What was it in 1953 or whatever to go on his expedition, um, to the, to Everest. And so actually um, Rolex made him a watch for that specific expedition. The one thing that people don't uh, often know is that actually there was a second brand that also made a watch for them. And that was a British watch maker uh, called Smith's. Um, and they are, well, the, the brand is still around. It's a different owner now, but yeah, so that you can actually get uh, the original Edmund Hillary uh, Smith's watch. And so the idea there again was that, you know, very purposeful utilitarian design. You know, it was about making sure that you knew what time it was and how long you've been walking in the snow rather than paying, you know, five grand for something that would impress uh, people in the office. Uh, but that's sort of a very sort of classic watch, the Rolex Explorer, but also the Smith's Everest, I think it's actually called, the Deluxe, I think it's called. That's worth looking at as well. I have a feeling that Smiths might have also been uh, very involved in making uh, car instruments. Yes, they so were. I'm, pre I'm pretty sure I've got about six of them in my old Jag. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they definitely did that. And, um, yeah, they made all sorts of instruments, uh, dials and things like that. Um, and they also made um, a lot of clocks. So if you're ever in the vintage store uh, that sells clocks, you'll typically um, – spot a few smiths around and you know i've actually bought one for our living room because i think it's quite a cool nerdy story to uh, annoy my uh friends with <laughs> if they're willing to listen for 30 seconds <laughs> right uh, another one uh, you mentioned though was the um the moon watch so I, you that would actually typically i mean not not that we're gonna uh be uh, tested for this but it would be a, a pilot's watch really 
but the cool thing about that was obviously there's another good story there. That's by Omega. That's called the Speedmaster. So the Speedmaster was originally actually meant to be a watch for racing drivers. But then in uh, for the Moon Expedition, the story goes that um, NASA tested a bunch of different watches, and including Rolexes and others, uh, and they ended up choosing the Speedmaster uh, as their watch for the moon. Um, and one of the reasons was that it's a manual wind watch. So, you know, again, to sort of reference the previous uh, bit that we talked about, it basically, you need to turn, physically turn the crown on the watch because if you had the plate on the back, the idea was that actually there wouldn't be enough gravitational pull in space for that to, for that mechanism to work. Now, apparently that's not true, but it's certainly a good marketing story. Uh, Sounds plausible. It's certainly enough for that to be like still, you know, one of the main stories told about the watch. So plausible enough for people to believe and therefore sell, you know, several thousand pound uh, watches for. So, you know, passes that test. And it's it, that's a real sort of classic design classic as well. So I'm lucky enough to own one from 1971, which I bought years ago. Um, and that's, yeah, I'd say that's probably one of my favorite sort of um designs uh as well because that's like a very sleek uh low profile watch it's still relatively wide and maybe we can talk about what sort of small versus large watches are but um but yeah it's it's a really lovely design and an extra sort of bonus cool feature if you're extra cool and you have a little bit more money to spare you can get a snoopy version of the speedmaster which would be the ultimate dream for me and maybe at some point in the future you brought up the topic of size. Now, a lot of these sort of big flexi uh, Instagram watches are pretty huge. I've no, I've no idea what diameter they are. I mm. think that's the, the measurement of it. But does size matter? <laughs> you might want to edit that bit out, Nick. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that's too childish. Um, no. So um, have you ever measured your watch? Would be my question back to you. Do you know roughly what size it is? I think I, I have a, an inkling, but. Well, you know, a, Apple Watch is square. Um, uh, I'm sure the, the Omega isn't actually that big. It's, yeah. It's at least pretty slim. But the Marathon must be relatively chunky and wide. No, the Marathon is actually surprisingly small. Okay. It is, it is a compact watch. It's, uh, it's a sort of watch that looks big on photos. But once you actually hold it, you realize that, hey, it's actually 20% smaller than you thought it might be. Because I think that they do a couple different variations. I think it's the Tsar, if I remember, and then there's a Jumbo, which is the one that the Marathon Jumbo is the one that a lot of people get, and that's a real beast of a watch. Um, but so yeah, so to but to go back to your point, I guess the main thing would be again, sort of a, from a historical perspective, there's quite an interesting story to tell there. Basically, what you originally had was um, big. Um, pocket watches and the reason that they had to be rel relatively big was because you know you wanted a certain amount of winding power within the watch and also in terms of precision um production you know the smaller you make something especially back then where you didn't have all sorts of fancy printers and cutters and all that you know the the smaller it was the more difficult it was to you know ensure quality uh but also it would be just more expensive to produce and so, you know, originally watches were relatively big. 
And eventually those pocket watches actually, you see that from the First World War, became trench watches. So the First World War, they needed watches. And what they did is they strapped on these big pocket watches onto their wrists. And eventually that became uh, something where, you know, smaller sizes became more desirable and available as well. So that sort of pushed the pendulum the other way towards smaller and smaller watches. So, you know, in the 50s, for example, um, producers like uh, JLC, um, uh, as it's called, um, they started to produce these really refined, sleek watches. And some of them are just, I mean, especially, if, you know, if you have a technical background and have an understanding of industrial design, I'm sure you would be even more blown away is like, the, the thinness of some of these uh, mechanical movements is just incredible. They're like, you know, a couple of, you know, bits of paper put on top of each other, but somehow there's cogs and all sorts of things in there that move around. So, you know, it really show, showed uh, the, I guess, the watchmaker's ability to produce something uh, that was uh, just impressive. And then in the 70s, it sort of went the other way, where these sort of very, you know, flamboyant, uh, a little bit loud uh, colors and designs became much more common. And so you sort of basically went from small uh, from the 20s and 30s, uh, that was sort of quite desirable but expensive, to it becoming more commonplace in the 50s and 60s, to these loud designs in the 70s. And then once the quartz crisis uh, hit the industry, which is that basically the Japanese flooded the market with quartz watches and blew everyone <laughs> away, and the Swiss watch industry sort of imploded. Um, you could have any size of watch because it was just based on the the battery, you know, uh, movement, which could be as thin or as big as you wanted it. So then size didn't really necessarily matter. It just became a bit of a, a style thing. And so that's why you saw in the 90s massive watches because that was cool. And then, you know, later on till now, really, uh, we're beginning, beginning to see more sensible sizes. And so from one extreme to the other, uh, if you talk about a big watch, that's probably something in the scale of sort of 44 millimeters, uh, I'd say, and anything above. So that's your Panerise. That's your sort of big, chunky watches that Sylvester Stallone would wear and look very cool with, and I would look ridiculous wearing. Um, and then to the other extreme, if you go to your vintage Omega watches and things like that, they can be, they can be as small as 32, which to a lot of people, when they put it on, especially because they're used to seeing bigger watches, feels very, very small. But, you know, I'd compare it to something like Ties, you know, there was um, a period where, you know, small ties were the thing and then big ties became the thing. But ultimately, you know, it also depends a bit about the person wearing the tie. You know, what's their style? What's, how big are they? You know, what suits them? So I think there's a parallel there, there that probably illustrates the point about watch sizes. Good point. Good point. Now, you mentioned uh, the period when the quartz movements came into it. Uh, was there also a period when actual sort of movements became a commodity in themselves. So I think I've read that a lot of watchmakers today use standard movements. Yes. Oh, so that's a real, This it's a really interesting, uh, tricky topic. So, okay, so um, basically the, the, the sort of the, the short sort of story about these kind of uh, mechanical movements would be if you're going to spend a lot of money on a watch, like a Rolex, um, you want it to be different from your Seiko, uh, your cheap Seiko, because Seiko produces a lot of ex really beautiful, expensive watches as well. But, you know, that's what people sort of associate with a nice Swiss piece is that it, it has to be different, you know, discernibly different. 
And one of those main differences that people want is that it's a mechanical movement watch, right? Because that feels like it's more expensive. And now that's not always the case. Uh, you can get plenty of battery-based movements that are A, superior, uh, but B, you know, even more difficult to produce as well and more expensive. So what's happened in the background of all of this is basically there are um, there are big producers of movements, uh, including in Switzerland as well as in China, and they produce a massive amount of uh, well components, but also full um, full uh, movements as well. And what then happens is these brands buy off-the-shelf movements, and some of them refinish these movements to a higher standard. But a lot of them just, you know, take an off-the-shelf movement and then plop it into a nice case and put a nice dial on it, then put their branding on it, and now you have a watch by them uh, that commands a higher price because they say it's mechanical and they say it's Swiss-made, but it doesn't necessarily immediately imply that it's, you know, something that's been manufactured with, you know, a tremendous amount of care or attention or that it's the same quality as you might want it to be. Mm. And is this something they're always open about? Mm. So one one thing that is um, typically throws people off is like one another gold standard that people want is apart from mechanical, they typically want something that's Swiss made. Now the definition of Swiss made um, is basically that I think it's the fifty one percent of the value of the components need to be manufactured in Switzerland. So that gives you a sense of, you know, you can have Swiss made on the watch, but actually, you know, nearly half of the components could come from anywhere. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. Uh, but again, there is this sort of discrepancy between, you know, it being branded as Swiss and sold to you as therefore better, but actually a lot of it could be coming from somewhere completely different. And so I, I would say that they're not as good about being completely transparent about these things, uh, or a lot of companies aren't, I would say. It's like uh, with uh, Rolls-Royce cars now, where I think almost all the components are taken from Germany to their factory outside Goodwood, where a staff, which is about 70% German, assemble the cars. Right. But of course, they are British car. Right, exactly. I'm not saying it's a bad car, it's a fantastic car, but is it really British then? I don't know. Does it matter? Hmm. And that this is exactly the same issue, exactly that, because it's, you know, as a, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? As long as you know what it is and you can make it a, you know, an informed decision about it. But this idea that um, you don't have the full information, but it's then sold to you with a certain packaging as if that's meant to be more desirable. I think that's where the issue lies, right? It is. I think uh, the moment you're transparent, transparent about it and the, the customer can actually make a decision that's fine but if you're sort of trying to be a bit sneaky about it like we see a lot in the garment business and in the shoe business i mean there's no end of british shoe manufacturers now who are accused of uh, having all the leather work done in india say and imported it sort of half finished mm. to northampton where they just basically put it together and put it in a box and it's made in britain then again, I don't think there's any really clear legal rules about it. There's something about the last major operation having to be done in the UK for it to be UK made, which I suppose if you're bringing in half-finished shoes, is legally valid. 
but from a customer's point of view, if it started its life in India with most of the operations, then it kind of isn't. Yeah. And so, uh, and it's difficult because I guess there is, you know, I think there is a, an issue also with um, consumers because if you're a relatively informed consumer, I think you might be, you know, willing to accept the product on whatever basis because you know that, you know, just because something is made, partly made in India or in China or whatever, you, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's worse quality or any of that. Um, but maybe there's something about for the person who just wants a quick sort of one-liner to be confident about their decision uh, that this shoe is worth, you know, the money that they're paying. Uh, they just want <laughs> that thing of British made. Uh, and they don't really want to be told all the sort of nuances that might be behind that. Mm. But I think the industry sort of has caused that themselves, haven't they? Because they've gone to this marketing ploy of, you know, um, equating something that is made somewhere as better. Yeah. And today there also seems to be a slew of new sort of fashion watch brands uh, like, stuff like Daniel Wellington and so forth. Oh. <laughs> yes. I heard you. So <laughs> expand. Uh, I mean, it, this, it really is. You see them on um, Kickstarter as well, a lot of these kind of fashion brands. And I mean, the, the short story is that, you know, 90% of what you're paying for there is not the components of the watches, but pure branding. And as long as you're happy with that, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, if you like the design and it's the watch that you've wanted, I'm not going to ruin it for you. It's a lovely piece of, you know, jewelry. Um, I sense a massive butt looming here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, it's just, it's, it's just a bit disheartening because, you know, they charge hundreds of pounds for something that really is worth much, much less. And it's because what they do is they buy cheap components uh, and again there's nothing wrong with using cheap components but there's something wrong with putting a massive markup on cheap components based on pure branding but they buy these pre-made um, basically everything pre-made um, cases pre-made uh, movements pre-made dials pre-made hands and then what they do is they get those uh, companies to just put their brand on the back and on the front of the watch and now it's a Daniel Wellington watch, but it's made from off-the-shelf components. Um, and it's not fair to only focus on Daniel Wellington. There's a bunch of these brands, and allegedly, this is what happens, <laughs> they just brand these things at the very you know end of that production. And then um, because they can command uh, a certain price based on massive marketing budgets, then that's what is ultimately sold. Um, so it really depends on what you want, right? Because if you're just, you know, very much uh, in in favor of the brand or you connect to the brand or whatever, and you just want to represent Daniel Wellington or another sort of a designer like Michael Kors or whatever, then there's nothing wrong with it. Um, go ahead and do it. But, you know, if you ever try to sell that on the secondhand market, and that's where you'll typically see the true value of stuff, you know, you'll struggle. Uh, to get anywhere near the retail price of these watches. Whereas if you buy something else, like, for example, an Omega or even a Seiko, 
uh, SKX uh, or, you know, again, a Cartier or uh, IWC, any of those watches, you know, um, yes, you'll lose some money, but there'll still be a massive amount of residual value in it. And if you buy it relatively sensibly on the secondhand market, chances are you won't lose money at all. Uh, so, you know, again, it just depends what you, uh, I guess, are hoping to get out of it and what you value. But um, I personally just don't think the the quality of the watches just uh, is reflects anywhere near the price. It is interesting, though, that these are, I mean, these are less watches than a pure fashion item. So they are made to be sold then. And if you try to resell them, say, a year or two later, they probably are almost worthless because their moment has passed and nobody wants them. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And um, so so one, I think another sort of parallel, though, is I, I don't want to come across as being like the guy in the ivory tower or the nerd that's like, uh, that's all garbage, because I don't think that's entirely fair either. And I think the sort of parallel there is, you know, if you're a denim nerd, um, you need to recognize that, you know, other people value other aspects of denim. And so, you know, you can't just uh, be elitist about, you know, unless you're spending 500 pounds on a pair of jeans as garbage. You know, there's obviously other solutions <laughs> uh, at sort of lower price ends. And so if someone wanted to, Daniel Wellington, there are, you know, other things that they could uh, buy that, you know, at that price point that I think is far better. But also, I guess, from um, the point of view of um, a company, I can see why they make certain decisions about not necessarily the nerd community, that's sort of the, the niche small community that wants them to produce a certain type of, uh, you know, good where in the denim world that could be something like unsamphorized, you know, massively interesting if you're a nerd, but completely off-putting if you're just want to buy a pair of jeans. And so there's equivalence of that in the watch world where I can completely see why manufacturers make the decisions that they do because they're not there to cater for my nerdy needs. They're there to, you know, appeal to a much bigger audience. Well, that's, uh, that's the way of things, isn't it? I mean, do you want to sell a million pair of jeans or a million watches to consumers or you want to sell to 15 guys on some weird forum that have agreed that that's what they want <laughs> exactly exactly uh, unless you're a tiny tiny little company who actually can cater to those and in that case you've you've got your market ready made exactly that exactly and then and then you know it's it's about figuring out what your product is and what your you know and ambition is i mean so you know, just uh, as a sort of side note to this sort of point is as much as, for example, people would go on and on about uh, mechanical movements being more desirable because they're sort of, you know, require more work or whatever, uh, even though that's not always true. But even if that is true, um, you know, your average Rolex loses about five or six seconds a day, uh, whereas your quartz watch will be maybe losing a second or so. So you know your cheap Daniel Wellington, chances are it keeps better time than your Rolex, and that that's the you know that's the sort of other murky uh, sort of truth to all of this. But it does seriously date your Instagram feed, though. I mean, if people scroll down, flexing sort of last year's fashion watch, I mean that could that could kill the following, especially yours and mine, because we're always at the front, aren't we? Nick? That's that's why I never show watches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes. Now, there's one thing that I, I'm sort of very curious in the workings of the world and so forth. And I heard a while back that you can't actually just walk into a Rolex dealer and buy a new Rolex watch. Now, this may go for all other high-end 
I was about to say overpriced, but I mean luxury brands. Um, that you, even though they're displayed and there's a price on them, you can't just go in and sort of, this is my card or this is my hold all of cash. Yeah. You can't do that. Is that a fact? Uh, that is in, okay, so that is true. Uh, certain type, uh, certain models uh, uh, of Rolex, so the sort of, um, the ones that are typically described as uh, steel sports versions uh, or models. So your, you know, your Submariners and your GMTs and that, yeah, you cannot go into a regular store, even if it's on Oxford Street, um, and, and ask <laughs> uh, ask to pay and take it home that day. That just doesn't, you can't do it. <laughs> what, what sort of business is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the thing, you know, it's uh, you know, very similar to things like Supreme. And obviously, you know, they'll deny this, but... Um, so the, the explanation from the manufacturer or, the, you know, in this case, Rolex um, would say that, well, you know, it's really difficult to produce these watches. And it is, you know, they go through a, a, a million things to, um, you know, produce the quality of watches at the scale that they do. And it's just not possible to produce as many uh, uh, as are required or, uh, you know, as um, demanded in the market. And so they're doing their best to keep up with the demand, but unfortunately, there is a, a massive, uh, you know, short uh, a sh- a shortage of supply for these wonderful, expensive items. Not sure I buy that. It's <laughs> like a lot of old. It's not them. It's us. Uh, You're very argument. cynical, Nick. You're very cynical. <laughs> um, so I mean, so so that that's at least the official explanation. Now, there's a bunch of other things that could come into it, and again, allegedly. Um, Things I have heard and read um, suggest that there is all sorts of ways that this, well, even if this is true, there's all sorts of ways that Rolex then leverages uh, this shortage. So, for example, if you want to be a Rolex retailer, you can't just buy the most desirable um, models that you know will sell out. You have to buy a certain combination of models that includes ones that are relatively difficult to sell. For example, gold Rolexes are typically more uh, difficult to sell and less desirable, uh, and they typically have to have a uh, will get a bigger discount on the the retail price. Whereas the store, sports steel watches, they never are discounted uh, in a retail setting. So it's a way for Rolex, for example, in this case, to make sure that you know it make sure that the re- uh, retailers are incentivized. Uh, to buy and sell a bunch of other models and not just the ones that are desirable. And something that happens in a lot of retail spaces uh, and other sort of uh, industries is that the more of, of um, you know the products that you sell, the more access you get, or the more sort of preferential access you get to the more desirable models. And so there are certain versions of models where, uh, you know, you can, it's kind of like Supreme, you know, you buy it day on one day, but you could potentially sell it for twice the value the next uh, in the secondhand market. Uh, so the retailers know this. And so they want these really desirable watches uh, and uh, to sell these uh, to customers. But then what they obviously do is they then pass on this pressure onto their customers and say, you know, only our best customers get access to these desirable models. And so you have these preferential sort of treatment uh, sort of approaches uh, from 
the manufacturer to the retailer and from the retailer to the customer. So you're really engaging the, your customers in selling your hard-to-sell watches. It's like some sort of Ponzi or pyramid scheme or something. Again, you're being very cynical, Nick. Why do they even make the watches that are hard to sell? I mean, why not just crank up the ones that are, people want? Yeah, well, that's 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 the ultimate question. I mean, I guess it's generally speaking, you know, uh, if you satisfy a certain demand, then it goes away, right? So, I mean, I think the name of the game is to keep that demand um, sort of hot. And so you always want to undersupply the, the market, and then that makes your overall brand just that much more desirable. So you can sell everything else as well. So, I mean, I think it's sort of a means uh, to an end of, you know, selling more watches, really. I'm sure they know what they're doing, even if I can't understand it. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, they've been around for 100 years and, you know, they're a massively profitable company. So um, they've figured something out. And again, they're not the only company that does stuff like this. You know, uh, streetwear obviously has <laughs> that everywhere. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, that's like the oldest trick in the book when it comes to streetwear clothing, right? Yeah. I mean, to w- win a lottery to be allowed to buy something it's so limited edition and then to resell it for three times the value and then you know so and then the next month there was another one and then another one you know so uh yeah Yeah. sort of uh, i see we're running out of time now but in closing now you obviously spent days and days and weeks gazing at watches online if you were to sort of um, mention your absolute holy grail of wrist-based timepieces what would it be So at the moment, I'm wearing a Timex uh, with Charlie Brown on it, So, which I love. Solid choice, solid. So, you know, it doesn't all have to be really expensive. Uh, It's not about that for me. Uh, I do have a couple of holy grails that I uh, love. Obviously, my grandfather's watch is the one that I'll never get rid of. I have a, a lovely Speedmaster from 1971, which is something that I wanted for years. Another one which I really love is my Reverso. Uh, we didn't touch on that, but that's a really interesting watch. If anyone likes square watches, a Reverso is sort of the pinnacle. Again, I've wanted that for many, many years and managed uh, some couple of years that's ago to buy it. That's you can sort of flip the face over. Yes. It, so do you know about two-faced. that? Yes. I have, I have actually seen one before. Strange idea. But I suppose <laughs> it's a sort of dual purpose, two for one. Do you, do you know what the what the origin of that is? Because that's another really silly story, but it's very interesting. Go ahead. <laughs> so, the reverso was actually for polo players. So, back in the thirties, uh, if you were sort of a, an aristocrat uh, and played polo, you obviously wanted to wear a watch at all times, even while playing polo. And so the thing about old watches was that the glass that they were made out of was this acrylic, not sapphire, like they are in modern days. And so what you wanted to be able to do is protect your watch. So what you could do is you could have the watch face literally turn onto its back where you would just have the steel back, uh, uh, the steel back covering the watch instead. And so if it was to be hit with a mallet or a heavy polo ball, you would be fine and you'd carry on playing polo. Again, a pragmatic solution. Very, except you know what? It actually this is and this is another nerdy fact, but interesting. It actually takes about a hundred components within the case alone 
to make that work. So seems very pragmatic, but it's massively over-designed in some ways. Yeah, you could have just had a steel shield you pulled over it instead. Yes. Being about four, four components. <laughs> and the other thing is you could just take it off, and then anytime you want to know the time, you could yell at someone and say, probably your servant because you're playing polo, and say, Time, boy. Exactly, exactly. Um, so that's yeah. So that's another grail that I managed to uh, track down. Now, one that has escaped me, and this is maybe a good one to end on, uh, is this is this. I mean, this is the ultimate story uh, sort of told in in the watch world. So there is the Everest, there is the Moon Watch, there's all that. But James Bond over and over again is you know the probably James Bond has sold more watches than any real or fake or fictitious person ever um and he has does do good marketing he, he sells Very everything good. doesn't he i mean he whether does. it's alcohol cars anything um, wax so, jackets wax jackets exactly haircuts um but he has worn a few different watches over the years now the one that people would typically associate with him is one called well the submariner which we spoke about and that's a really cool watch um that's not the one I want, though. I think in the 60s, uh, it was sixty mid-60s, let's call it that, he wore something called a Breitling Top Time. Now, I don't really like modern Breitlings because they're too sort of uh, flashy and shiny for me. Uh, there's very few of them that I like. But that vintage Breitling uh, Top Time, which has this really beautiful navy dial with two circles um, of white in the middle, which are the uh, chronograph function. So that allows you to stop and start a, a, a seconds timer. That is a classic watch. And hopefully at some point I'll manage to track that down. I had a, an opportunity recently, but it just didn't work out. Um, it's just too much money at the moment. So, But one day I'll, I'll hopefully find one that's in good enough condition and at the right price, that's the one I'm tracking down. Right. I hear in the new Bond movie, he's, he's wearing a Daniel Wellington. That make it a lot easier. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll wait to see it before I make my decision. Yeah. That was just a, just a magic joke. <laughs> no, I imagine it was. Uh, anyhow, Daki, this was great. I'll let you get on with your day now. And uh, I think we'll probably have to have another watch uh, session. Yeah. Sure. Anytime. Any. Anytime someone's exactly. Anytime someone's willing to listen to my uh, uh, nerdy spiel's, I'm a, I'm in, Nick. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, and uh, bye bye. See you later. And that was all for this week's episode. A new episode next week. If you'd uh, like to investigate further, uh, my blog is at welldresseddad.com, Instagram at welldresseddad. Um, you've been listening to Gomology. Please uh, leave a rating and a review if you like. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to get in touch, the email address is welldresseddad at gmail.com. Thanks a lot and catch you next week.